we're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 this morning, if you'll open your Bibles there. First book of the New Testament, Matthew, chapter 16. I'm going to pray for us as you're turning there. Father, we're grateful again for Easter Sunday and the opportunity to worship you and praise you for what you've done for us. And as we study your word now, we pray that you would speak to us through it, that you would give us wisdom and understanding to comprehend what it says and what it means, and that, Lord, we would not be hearers only of your word, but you would make us doers of your word by the power of your spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Today's a great celebration. This is the day we celebrate the greatest event mankind has ever known, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Nearly 2,000 years ago, God stepped into human history and he demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. We celebrate that even though we are infected with sin by nature and by choice and that all have fallen short of the glory of God and despite the fact that the Bible says the penalty for sin is eternal death, even so, the Bible says that because God loves us, Well, he paid the penalty for our sins. The Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. That word mediator, it means this literally. It means one who intervenes between two to make or restore peace and friendship with God. Do you have peace and friendship With God today, you can through Jesus Christ and the work that he did. That's the result of Easter, that we can have peace, we can have friendship with God, we can have the assurance of eternal life in the future, as well as abundant life here today. That's what God promises to us in Jesus Christ. And the Bible promises that we can hear him. We can hear him when he speaks, we can know his voice, and that's our theme this week. That's our theme today, is that Hey, we want to hear him. Here's the idea. We're exploring this idea that the noise of this world, that the distractions and disruptions and the desires of our hearts, well, often those, those things can drown out the voice of the Lord. And, and so it gets us to a place where maybe we don't hear God's voice as we should. We're distracted. We're burdened. We're, we're, we're weighed down by all sorts of things that compete for our, our affections and our attention and so on. I heard a story recently of a man who was frustrated with his wife. Uh, she, she just, she never seemed to be able to hear him. And so, so he called up his doctor's office. He said, look, I got to get my wife in, in to, the, to see you because the lady can't hear well, it's Easter time. They're busy. They, they said, look, we can, the doctor's got no appointments available. He's going to be taken off, you know, for a week at Easter, and, and there's people backed up. The soonest we can get you in is in about three weeks, right? It sounds like my HMO. I don't know about yours, right? So, you know, as soon as we can get you in is three weeks. But here's what we can do. We'll make the appointment, but you can do a hearing test on your wife in the, in the meantime. You can gauge the severity of it. That might speed things up when you come in. Okay, great. He makes the appointment, and he says, so tell me about that hearing test. They said, all right, so here's what you do. You wait until your wife's back is turned to you. She's distracted with something, and, and you, you ask her a question or you know, something that elicits a response from her. And so you start about 40 feet behind her, ask her a question, see if, if she responds. If she doesn't hear you, move forward in 10-foot in- increments until such time as she can hear you. He said, all right. So hangs up, <clears throat> goes to his wife. She's cooking. She's got her back to him. She's cooking. 
So he's, he's about 40 feet back. He says, hey, honey, what's for dinner? Nothing. She can't hear him. And so he moves forward 10 feet. Honey, what's for dinner? No response. 10 feet further. 10 feet further. He, pretty soon, he's five feet from her. Hey, honey, what's for dinner? She's like, George, for the crying out loud, this is the fifth time I've told you we're having chicken for dinner. See, like George, the problem with hearing God for us, well, it's us. We're the problem. Here in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 16, what we're doing is we're following Jesus around the Sea of Galilee at this point in his ministry, and and he's teaching the people there. And as we're going to see that what he's focusing on right here during this time and what Jesus often focused on was the event that was going to alter the course of human history. Jesus is teaching on his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But here's the problem. People aren't hearing him. So we jump in. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Pharisees and Sadducees, they're religious leaders, they're skeptics, and they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They want a sign. And he answered and he said to them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. Uh, He says, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. A wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah and he left them and departed. Now Jesus, of course, he's speaking about the sign of Jonah. We're talking about Jonah and the whale. And, and, you know, anybody who's been to church for a length of time, if you've gone to church as a kid, you've heard the story of Jonah and the whale. Here's the story in a nutshell. Jonah's a prophet. God tells him, look, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is modern-day Iraq, okay? And, and the people of Nineveh were wicked. They were brutal. I could tell you some of the torturing techniques that they did to people. It's unpleasant conversation for a beautiful Easter Sunday morning. But it was absolutely brutal. It, and, and, and not a lot of people lining up to go vacation in Nineveh. It's like, hey, I got an idea. We, I, got, I got tickets to Tora Bora, Afghanistan, and we're going to go on vacation. Your wife would be like, you're high. What are you talking about? We're not doing that. So, so here God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Well, Jonah says no to God. Now, he's a servant of God, but God tells him this. He says no. Now, we might think, well, he's saying no because, you know, it's a, it's a bad place. They kill people in Nineveh. That's not why Jonah's telling God no. In fact, you, you start reading through the book of Jonah. What you discover, here's Jonah's motivation. He says, you know what, God? I know you. You're a loving God. You're a gracious God. You're a merciful God. These people, they deserve to be hit by a truck and then back the truck over them a few hundred times, man. They're wicked people. They need to die. Somebody needs to put them out of my misery, man. So they need to die. And what's going to happen, I know you. I'm going to go and I'm going to speak to them and they're going to repent and you're going to forgive them and you're going to save them. Well, duh, that's what God does. The Bible says that God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to faith in him, that come to the saving faith and have eternal life. That's the heart of God. You need to hear that today. God is not an angry God. He's not a malevolent God. He loves you. 
He desperately loves you. He doesn't want anybody to be lost. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, you've done all of this stuff. And, you know, I hear people tell me, oh, I would never go to church. A bolt of lightning would hit me if I walked into church. It's like, dude, come join the rest of us hypocrites, man. One more is not going to make any difference, you know. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. God wants that none of us to, to, to die, to perish. So, so Jonah goes, I ain't going, man. I'm not going to do it. So what's he do? He jumps on a boat going in the opposite direction, which, not in my notes, but how many times do we do that? God speaks to us, and we just jump on, a, on the first thing that takes us in the opposite direction of God. Well, God says, no, you're not going to do that, Jonah. So what's he do is he causes this huge storm to, to hit this, this boat. And the guys on board are losing their minds. Man, they are, they are freaking out. They know they're dead. They're throwing everything overboard, trying to lo- lighten the load of the ship. And finally, Jonah's like, it's me. Just throw me overboard. You guys will be fine. Because God's, God, God's wrath, man, just... You're going to be collateral damage. Just throw me overboard. He's after me. So they're like, well, all right. So they throw him overboard. (laughs) Everything smooths out for them. They're kosher. They're cool. But there he is, supposedly going to his watery grave. Now, what does God do? Well, the uber whale shows up. (laughs) And he goes on board. Now, the Bible doesn't call it a whale. It says it was a great fish. We surmise that it was a whale. But there he is. He's on board. And... He's in that belly of that whale for three days, three nights, right? And, and what happens is that God saves him, and he gets him where he wants him to be. The whale throws him up, barfs him up on the shore of Nineveh. He comes out, and he's like, oh, I guess I'm in Nineveh. God just brought me here. Now, no doubt some of you are going, yeah, that whole Jonah and the whale thing, that, that's, see, that's the problem I got with the Bible, Pastor. That's why I don't believe this whole stuff. I mean, it's just crazy to think that some dude is going to live in the belly of a whale for three days. It's interesting. Six, there's a book entitled 63 Years of Engineering. It was written by a guy named M.G. Parvell. And uh, he tells the story in his book about a whaling ship that was called the Star of the East. And this was a ship in 1891 that was operating in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands. And what happened was they saw a sperm whale and they dispatched two boats. To, they put in the two whaling vessels off of the big ship that went after to hunt the sperm whale. And there was a, a, a guy on one of those small boats named, named James Bartley. And as they were coming alongside this, this, this whale to kill it, and the mouth agape and all, this guy actually falls into the mouth of this whale, and he's lost. Well, the whale gets away. Two days later, they catch this whale. They get it up on board the ship. They cut it open. Guess who they find in the whale's stomach? Find James Bartley in the stomach. And the dude's unconscious, but he's alive. Now, the stomach acids, they bleached his face and his neck and his hands, solid white, and all of his hair just fried off. because So he's got, he's got no hair, and he's bleached by these stomach acids. He actually would end up going around like a circus sideshow freak, touring around uh, you know, the, the country so that people could see the dude that, that lived in the whale. How is this possible? Well, whales, they're mammals. They breathe air. And, and their stomachs contain air for buoyancy. And so this guy stayed alive. It's a, it's a historic, historically proven tale. There's actually other stories as well. 
And so, amazing, right? But here's the thing. The details of how Jonah physiologically lived inside a whale isn't the point. The point is, is that the story paints a spiritual picture of the love of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, Jonah offered his life to appease the wrath of God that was coming upon others. When he was on that ship in disobedient sin, God's wrath being poured out on disobedient sin. And what did Jonah do? He says, throw me overboard, you guys will be saved. So he offered his life, just as Jesus offered his. But the grave didn't hold him. After three days, Jonah was freed. And this deliverance of Jonah ends up saving the entire nation of Nineveh. As he's barfed up on the beach there, and Jonah goes in, and what's the message he preached? He, he doesn't like these people. He just says, you know what? You got three days, and then you're all dead. God's going to kill you. But God does this incredible work. See, the Bible says that no man comes to, to the Father except for the Spirit draws him. And, and so, you know, Paul, when he was talking about how he preached the gospel, he said, when I came to you, I didn't use all these eloquent words. I didn't use persuasive speech to get you to believe in Jesus. I just told you what the Bible says, and I left the rest of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that draws you to God. Today, during the message, I have no doubt, absolute confidence, that as I teach God's word to you, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to your heart. God is going to draw some of you to himself. There are some of you here today that, that you don't know where you're going to spend eternity when you die. There's some of you here today that if I said, where are you going to spend eternity? Are you going to heaven? Are you going to hell? You would say, I don't know. Listen, you can know today, and I'm absolutely confident that God, by his Holy Spirit, is going to reveal himself to your hearts. And he's going to be drawing you to himself. And so Jonah, he ends up delivering and, and saving the lives of an entire nation, and it's the same with Jesus. Jesus said this, he said, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's speaking of his death, of his burial, and of his resurrection. See, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. The Bible says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there's nothing in you that is inherently good to earn a right standing with God. The Bible says very plainly, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. You work, the end of the work week, it's payday. Pay me for what I did. It's, 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 it's give me my wages. Well, the Bible says your wages for the work that you've done, the life that you've lived, is death. But the Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And the Bible says that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if you make the confession that, hey, I believe that and I believe that God raised him from the dead, and the Bible says that you'll be saved. Not just an intellectual belief that, oh yeah, I believe that Jesus is God, but no, I've said, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. I'm confessing that I'm a sinner, 
by nature and by choice, but I'm also confessing that Jesus is the Savior, and Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior. Listen, we have a Father in heaven who loves us. He's gone to great lengths to redeem us, and now we have a mediator that offers to us peace and friendship with God. Do you have peace in your life? Do you have friendship with God? See, the Bible says, who then will condemn us? It's a rhetorical question that it then immediately answers. No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, and he's pleading for us. What that means is that right now, this very second, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's praying for you by name. He's interceding for you. He's pleading for you. And he's saying, Father, I died for that person. I paid the penalty for their sin. Maybe you've wandered. Maybe you think it's too late. Maybe you think, man, I've done too much. Uh-uh. The Bible says this, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us, listen, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the work that Christ has done on the cross. I'm going to give you an opportunity to have peace with God, to have your sins forgiven. God promises that in Christ we're a new creation, that the old things pass away and all things become new. And in a few minutes, I'm going to give you an opportunity to make a profession of faith and an invitation to Christ to be your Lord and Savior, and He will make your life new. He will cleanse you. He'll forgive you. He'll change you. And so here, the religious leaders in Matthew 16, they want a sign before they're going to hear him. And maybe that describes some of you. Maybe you are, are, are saying, you know what, that, the, the, I, I need more than that. I need more than the words of the Bible. I need a sign. I need, I need, the, I need the Lord to manifest him, his way, his, himself to me in a tangible, physical way. Well, it's interesting. Jesus told a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus told this parable about a rich man and about a guy named Lazarus. Lazarus was a poor beggar. And the scene and the situation was this rich man is all, you know, a fat cat, got everything. This poor beggar, Lazarus, he doesn't get nothing from the rich man. Well, in this parable, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, Jesus, as he tells it, he says, you know, day comes, the rich man dies, and Lazarus dies. And the rich man, he goes to hell. Lazarus, he goes to heaven. Not really heaven, he goes to a place called Abraham's bosom. It's too complicated to get into for the sake of the story. We'll just say it's heaven, all right? So, so, so Lazarus goes to heaven, rich man goes to hell. And, and so what happens is the rich man's in torment, torment, and he looks at Lazarus, essentially in heaven, in luxury, and he says, oh my gosh, listen, Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus to warn my brothers? I don't want them to be in the same condition that I'm in. But Abraham replied essentially this. He says, look, your brothers can read the Bible. In other words, what he's saying is God's already warned them in the Bible. Now, I'll put this on the screen for you as the conversation continues. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and they'll turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, in other words, if they won't listen to the Bible... 
They won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Remember, this is Jesus telling this story. What's he talking about? Well, Jesus knows that he's going to die for the sins of mankind and, he, mankind, and he knows he's going to rise from the dead. And amazingly, astonishingly, people still won't believe when they see this miraculous thing. The very thing that this rich man in this parable is saying, hey, look, you know, uh, just send somebody from the grave. And Jesus goes, even that, people are not going to believe. No, the, the no sign's going to be good enough. And listen, today, if you will not hear him, you will not hear his voice. If you will not hear his word, no sign's ever going to be good enough. You see, God's word is the very thing that tells us that someone did rise from the dead. It was the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look, are you listening to him? Do you hear him today? Jesus said this, For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. Jonah gets barfed up on the beach. He's bleached white. People see him there. He's a shocking sight. And he's assigned to them like, hey, look, I just spent three days in a whale. Guess what? God sent me here to tell you about him. Just as he was assigned, the Bible says, Jesus said, that he himself was going to be assigned to this generation. How is Jesus going to be assigned to this generation? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 tells us over 500 eyewitnesses saw Jesus rise from the dead. I don't know if you know this, eyewitness testimony is the strongest testimony in a court of law. They can have you on video robbing a bank and driving away a car and running over three people and 500 eyewitnesses testify that it wasn't you, you're acquitted in every state of the union, every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Eyewitness testimony. Jesus says, look, I'm going to be assigned to this generation. Now, as Jesus continues here in the teaching in Matthew 16... Now we're going we're gonna to skip uh, to verse 13. And basically, he's left the region of Magdala where he was encountering the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and having this conversation about, hey, we want a sign. Now he moves to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Pick it up in verse 13. Here's what he says. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, Now, by the way, that's the question everybody has to answer. You have to answer that. Did you know there's an entrance exam to heaven? There is. You want to get into heaven? Here's the the test question that you got to answer correctly. You're going to be asked, who's Jesus? You have to be able to answer that, that correctly. And so here's what Peter says when Jesus says, hey, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, Well, they say, you know, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, and he said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. Now listen to what Jesus says. Jesus answered, and he said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that's son of Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He's ding, 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 you got the right answer, Peter, awesome. And he says you're blessed, why? Well, because flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Now, that word revealed is significant. It's the word apocalypso, 
We get the word apocalypse from that. We think apocalypse, death, destruction, mayhem, and so on. But really, what it means is unveiling. And the idea here is that this revealing of God to Peter, this this revealing of who Jesus Christ is, that Peter would say, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God, he says, look, it's something which is presented directly to his mind from God. That's the idea. That's what's being conveyed here. See, you have to hear him is the point. The Bible says that God reveals himself through his creation. You know, that, that objectively we can see his fingerprints all over creation, and certainly we can. You think of the intricacies of molecular biology or the complex systems and structures in this world. And you can't possibly look into the human eye into just the way God has put things together. When you understand on a molecular level how everything works together, they're, they're on a microscopic level. You watch as the cells work together as, as like, a, a, like a factory, like a machine, like the, the parts have to fit together to, to be able to do all of the functions that we do. There's no way it just happened by random chance. I mean, people, you know, believe it, you know, it's from the goo to the zoo to you, you know, and there's just no way that things didn't happen with a supernatural creator. This is how God reveals himself. The psalmist said this, the heavens declare his glory. They got finger, the fingerprints of God all over them. But listen, to hear God requires that we listen to and that we receive this divine revelation this thing that is presented directly to our mind from God the Father. Listen, I have no doubt this morning that as I'm talking, that God the Father is revealing Jesus Christ to you. Some of you sitting here this morning, it's not my persuasive word that's going to make the difference in your heart. It's not going to make the difference in your head. As a matter of fact, right this moment, there's, there's very well a battle that's taking place. Certainly if second service is any, in, anything like first service, if first service is any indication of how this is going on here, if the, if the Spirit of God speaking to my heart is, is any indication what's going on right now, is that intellectually you're saying, this is crazy, but I know that God's revealing himself to you, and some of you in your heart right now, you're thinking, I'm drawn to this, but, I, but intellectually, I, I, I don't know. And there's this battle that's taking place. Why? Because God wants to reveal Jesus Christ to you. He wants to reveal Jesus to you. This is why Jesus so often in the scriptures, you hear him say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you have ears to hear him today? Because he's speaking. The question isn't, is he speaking? The question is, will you hear him? Well, we continue now. And now we move to verse 21. So Peter makes this confession. Peter, you're blessed. You got the answer right. Now what Jesus does is he moves and he, and he goes right back to this core issue of his death, burial, and resurrection. Listen to what he says. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, this is contrary to what the Jews expected. They thought their Messiah was going to come 
And that when their Messiah came, he was going to set up his rule and reign, that they were going to rule and reign with him, and that, among other things, he was going to kick Rome out. See, Jerusalem, the Jewish nation, Israel, they're under Roman occupation right now. So their earnest expectation was that the Messiah is going to come, and he's going to set everything right, and he's going to be large and in charge, and he's going to kick butt and take names, and we're going to be with him, you know? And so... Jesus says this, Peter hears this, how does he respond? Verse 22, then Peter took him, speaking of Jesus, aside and began to rebuke him. Peter rebuking Jesus, he says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter's going, hey, this is not according to plan, Jesus. And let me just tell you how it's supposed to go down. You're the Messiah. You're going to come back. You're going to kick butt. You're going to kick Rome out. And we're all going to rule and reign with you. Jesus, I got my corner office picked out. I already got all my furniture picked out. I started interviewing staff. Like, this is, you're messing up all, of, all, all the plans, Jesus. You're getting in the way. How's Jesus respond? But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That word mindful is very telling. It means to savor, to to be interested in, to set your affection on, to be drawn toward. In other words, Jesus is saying, Look, Peter, your focus isn't on me. Your focus is on you on your plans, on on your little empire that you got, you know, everything that you think is supposed to go down, you got your focus somewhere else. See, Peter here, he's not so much different than those in verse 14 when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And he says, well, some think you're John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. See, just as some perceived that Jesus was someone less than God, understand that Peter here, Well, he begins to treat Jesus as being less than God. Why? Well, because in Peter's mind, what's going on in light of Peter's agenda, he sees Jesus as the delivery man. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is going to deliver to to Peter what Peter thinks he's got coming. And and so this is the way it's going to go down. Listen, Peter wouldn't hear him. We have to answer the question, will we hear him today? When God's plans don't line up with yours, are you going to hear them? When God prescribes something in your life, how many of you know when you go to the doctor and you prescribe some medicine, sometimes it's bitter. And when God prescribes something bitter in your life, are you going to fight against him or are you going to hear him? When, when, when God says, look, if, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, you've got to pick up your cross and you have to follow me. By the way, Jesus said you have to pick up your cross daily. And follow him. Now some people think, you know, coming to Christ, it's like a country western song played backwards. And you get your car back, or your truck back, your dog back, your wife back. You know, it doesn't work like that. When you give your life to Christ, you have now set yourself against the enemy. You will go through times of persecution and trial. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're like, well, I don't know if that sounds like, you know, something that's particularly appealing to me. All right, how does eternal life separated from God and hell appeal to you? Because, listen, the, the nature of our hearts is in opposition to God. We need a Savior. And so the thing is, is that, listen, God tells us that, that 
everybody who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. You need to understand today, when I give you an invitation to receive Jesus Christ, I'm not giving you an invitation that, hey, it's going to be all puppy dogs and butterflies and everything's going to go great in your life. That's not the case. You will still suffer persecution. You still suffer trial. But you know what? You will have peace in your life with God. And God will give to you his presence and his purpose and a future and a hope. He will make you into a new creation. Listen, Jesus said, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, now we move on and we'll just close here with this. We get to chapter 17. And now what's happened is that it's six days after Jesus has this conversation with Peter. And and now we read verse 17. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother. He led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And then Peter answered, and he said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, three dwellings. It's like, let's live here. This is awesome. Let's just stay here for the rest of our, this is awesome, man. He says, let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. Here you've got Moses and Elijah, and these two guys, they represent the law and the prophets. In other words, they represent the sum total of, of Old Testament revelation from God. Now, here's, here's what you got to understand. When God gave his law in the Old Testament, it was intended to show us that we can't keep his law and that we need a savior. God gives to us his 10 commandments, his standard for righteousness in the Old Testament. Okay, we'll just sum it up, the law in the 10 commandments. And God says, this right here is holiness. You keep this, this is the way that you are to go. Now the whole reason God gives that to us is because he wants to show us that we can't do that. And, and, and I run into people frequently, uh, you know, I'll say, hey man, you know, how do you, how do you know you're going to heaven? And frequently people will tell me, well, you know, I'm a good person. Uh, you know, I, I haven't killed anybody. I'm not Charles Manson or anything. I'm a decent guy. You know, or, or, you know, great qualification, right? You know, you should get into heaven because you're not a murderer. Good, good for you. That makes you, well, you're a great pick, you know, because you're not a murderer. You know, why should I let you date my daughter? Well, I'm not a murderer. Oh, okay, cool. Here you go. You, right? I mean, it's just not that great of a thing. But people will tell me, well, I should go to heaven because I'm a good person. Because, you know, I, I, go, I should go to heaven because I, I keep the Ten Commandments. I'm like, you're a liar. You don't even know the Ten Commandments. Like, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is that you're not supposed to lie, right? If you've ever told a lie, guess what? You've sinned. The Bible says the wages of sin, any sin, it's not on a sliding scale, is death. 
So, so God gives you the law to show you that you can't keep it. Why? So you will say, who's going to save me? Paul said, that that I want to do, I don't do. And that that I don't want to do, that's what I do. And it brings him to the conclusion that God wants all of us to come to. He says, who's going to save me from this body of death? Paul goes on to answer the question, it's Jesus who's going to save me. Listen to what Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 3.24. He says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. God says, hey, let me just show you that you need a savior. So I'm going to give you my righteous standard so that when you break it, you realize that you can't do it. And this is, Satan wants you to get on this religious trap. Satan loves religion. Religion says, do good, try harder. God's not happy with you, but you know what? Spiritually speaking, if you start working out a little bit, then you can get you, worm your way back into God's good graces. Maybe even today you're here in church thinking, well, gosh, you know, God, I, I, I haven't been so great, but it's Easter, and now I'm, I'm kind of guilted. I just got to come back. I want to I work back into like some sort of a right relationship with you. No, it's not about works. It's about confession of faith. God wants you to realize that you're a sinner by nature and by choice and that you need a Savior. His name is Jesus. So here we are, there's this, this, this revelation of the law and the prophets, right? Because you've got, you've got Moses and you've got Elijah there. Well, who do they appear together with? They appear together with Jesus Christ, this New Testament revelation of Jesus. And together, what you've got is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Jesus said this, he said, don't think that I came to destroy the law uh, or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. See, the entire Bible is all about Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward in faith to the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel looks at the present Jesus Christ, and all of the epistles after it look back at the work of Christ. The whole Bible is about Jesus, about the necessity of his death, of his burial, and of his resurrection. And so Peter sees this. He says, oh man, this is great. I want to build three tabernacles. I want to live here. Look at what God did. Let's just stay right here. And God, in effect, tells Peter, no. Here's what God says. He says, listen, effectively, look, transformation isn't a spectator sport. This transformative work, it's not where you look at God, what God did. It's not where you look at what God's doing in other people. No, transformation is what God wants to do in everyone. Today, God wants to transform you. And it only comes when you hear him. And that's why God the Father says, look, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. Listen, God wants you to hear him today. Isaiah the prophet said this. And I close with this verse. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Listen, what you need to know today is that God loves you. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die for your sin in your place. People say, gosh, how could a loving God send people to hell? No, 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 you you get it wrong. God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. He doesn't send anybody to hell. What does God do? God says, I love you so much, I'm going to send Jesus Christ. The Bible says, God so loved the world, 
He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. So God, what He has done is He's made the way, the only way, the Bible says, that you can be made right with Him. He's made the way by sending His Son to pay the penalty for your sin in your place. And He says, look, I'm offering you this forgiveness. If you go to hell, it's because you've rejected His Son and you've made the choice to go there. God doesn't want you to. And so today, as we close in prayer, I'm going to give you an invitation to get right with God, to to surrender and ask Him to be your Lord and Savior. And I pray you would hear His voice and respond to it today.